Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of All Crime, No Cattle. I'm Shay. And I'm Erin. And we have been away for a little bit, and that's mostly my fault, and I will apologize for that, but I have been traveling for work quite a bit all over the state of Texas, and I've also had some medical issues and uh, some medical concerns that I've had to take some time to recuperate, so... Thank you for being patient and uh, allowing us to get to a point where we can put out our, our next two episodes, which there are, there are two. This is a two-parter. This is a whopper. It's a double. Yeah, it's a really big case. There's a lot to cover. So why don't we just uh, tell the people what they're, they're getting into here? This is a story of politics, power, and revenge set in Kaufman County, Texas. Let's go ahead and cover our sources right at the top. Now, this was a sensational case, well covered nationally, but some of the most comprehensive coverage comes from the Dallas Morning News. The Dallas Observer and the LA Times also published several important articles as well. But really, there are tons of news articles regarding the case, and we've put links to some of the most helpful ones in the episode notes. There are also various official documents available online, including affidavits and opinions generated by the court. If you'd rather watch something about the case, there are two really good TV episodes available. The first is an episode of Dateline from Season 9, Episode 22, entitled Vendetta. And the second is a 48 Hours episode called Target Justice that first aired in February of 2016. Both are a little simplistic, but they do a really good job of laying out the broad details of the case. But above all, the best source on this case is the 2018 book In Plain Sight, written by journalist and true crime writer Catherine Casey. In Plain Sight provides an incredible amount of context and insight into the personal and political relationships that were really at the core of this story, things that we're only going to scratch the surface of even with a two-parter. Now, we'll be talking more about Catherine Casey's work and her involvement with the case in the next episode. 
Before we really dig in, it's important to get a sense of the backdrop of where this story unfolded. Kaufman County in Northeast Texas. It's a relatively rural county with a low population density. For example, at the time of this story, about 100,000 people lived there, while its next-door neighbor, Dallas County, had a population of 2.5 million. Yeah, so I was going to ask, this is southeast of Dallas, correct? Yes, they're right next to each other, basically. Yeah, so kind of headed towards East Texas a little bit, but just to the southeast of Dallas. So a little wooded, little North Texas area. Yeah, and it's right on the edge of the Metroplex that is DFW. Mm -hmm. It's still considered part of DFW Metroplex area, but it's right on the cusp where you're getting into really rural kind of Texas, if that makes sense. It kind of runs the full spectrum then of probably people who are commuting into Dallas County Absolutely. And, and then yeah. also people who are just living in that county and are very rural. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Now, the Kaufman County seat, so its center of administration and where its courthouse is located, is the small town of Kaufman with a population of about six to 7,000 people. So, oh, wow. again, very small. That is small. The events of this case are going to make headlines across the country and put the eyes of the nation on this small, unassuming town. They also deeply impacted pretty much everyone involved in the county's leadership and criminal justice system, from judges, attorneys, and even the local law enforcement. The story begins with a prosecutor named Mark Hassey, and his story actually began in Dallas County. Mark grew up and spent most of his life in Dallas. After graduating from SMU's Dedman School of Law in 1981, he began working at the Dallas County District Attorney's Office and eventually became one of their assistant district attorneys. Ultimately, Mark was promoted to become the chief felony prosecutor for the Organized Crime Division of the DA's office. That meant that for several years, Mark was responsible for prosecuting all the worst gang activity Dallas had to offer. A lot of drug trafficking and manufacturing and murder, and of course, many cases involving members and leaders of gangs and drug cartels. Okay, so it sounds like he's been busy. He's probably had a pretty full uh, caseload through his, throughout his career in Dallas. Yes, during his early career with the Dallas District Attorney's Office, that's a great way to put it. Mark was called a bulldog in the courtroom, incredibly knowledgeable and very sharp. In fact, people said he could memorize entire opening statements so he could give very dramatic and impactful speeches to sway juries in the state's favor. Outside the courtroom, Mark was known as a really funny guy and a huge animal lover. But his biggest hobby was flying. He'd started flight training in high school and got his license in college, and had since racked up mechanics, engine, and instrument certifications. So he became very adept at building and working on aircraft as well. Oh, wow. And this was just like a hobby of his on the side. That's really cool. If I was able to uh, do that at some point, I'd love to get into flying and learning how to fly. Oh, I know, right? That would be so cool. Well, he loved it so much that in 1988, he left his old job behind and he decided to unite both of his passions, the law and flying, and he opened up his own private practice specializing in aviation law. What? Yeah, I know. Is there such a thing? Apparently, because that's what he did. <laughs> what a niche. Yeah, and he also he also purchased a little airplane hangar in Rockwall and started fixing up old planes as well. 
So I think it okay. allowed him to kind of pursue his hobby on the side. Oh, uh, sure. In addition to that. That's interesting. Oh, and, and for those of you that don't know, Rockwall is in East Dallas. Yes. It's, yeah. And it's also where he lived. In 1995, Mark took part in a huge event called Freedom Flight America. In commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II, hundreds of pilots were flying across the country together in a huge convoy, making several stops in different cities along the way. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And this was a really special event planned to honor the veterans of World War II. So were they flying like World War II type vehicles? they were. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Mark himself was flying a T-6 single-engine airplane, which was one of the trainer aircraft that was used by pilots in the Air Force during World War II. Oh, cool. Mark had also participated in the organization of the event over the course of two years, because this was obviously a huge thing. Yeah, so he's like a mover and shaker in that community that's putting it all together. The group was flying over Virginia towards the end of the tour, when Mark noticed that the oil pressure in his engine was dramatically dropping. So the gauge was telling him that there was something going on with his oil pressure. And I believe at the time, I believe they later figured out that the oil, the engine oil was leaking. Ooh, that didn't sound good. Exactly. So he called in an emergency landing and he tried to make one at the nearest airport. But the engine seized up and the plane overshot the runway and crashed into an embankment. The impact drove Mark's head into the plane's instrument panel, fracturing his skull and causing significant brain injuries. Oh, no. Doctors were able to save his life, but he ended up suffering post-traumatic amnesia, i.e. short-term memory loss. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and so that's obviously particularly devastating in, in a line of work such as being a lawyer yeah and you had said he had a great memory and he could memorize all these opening statements and stuff so he can't do that anymore i'm guessing with all this short-term memory loss well i mean that's the issue is you don't really know how somebody's going to bounce back after an injury to the brain like that is it going to take them years to get better are they ever going to get better again so it's it's just something that Nobody can tell unless hey, until it until that person heals. You're preaching to the choir. I've had a lot of head injuries and I don't know if I'm ever going to be all right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's true. We see this in a lot of athletes today. I mean, we just saw what happened with Tua in the NFL recently. Oh, yeah. The Miami Dolphins quarterback had two concussions within like basically a week of each other. Yeah. After the accident, Mark underwent two years of rehabilitation, although he was back to flying planes well before he, his recovery period was up. He's still flying planes. So at this he point? he like got right back up Ooh. on that horse and started flying planes again. And sure enough, Mark ended up returning to prosecution as well. Oh wow. So he ended up making like a full recovery. And in 2010, he began working as a chief felony prosecutor at the Kaufman County District Attorney's Office. And from everything I've heard, part of the appeal of becoming an ADA in Kaufman County was that it was probably going to be slower paced and less stressful than his old position back in Dallas County. Right. It might be something he could ease back into a little yeah, bit Yeah, right after his... He'd been out of law for a while. He'd had this really significant injur, injury, and I think that's a really great way of pu- putting it. He was kind of easing himself back into law. Yeah, smaller workload. You probably don't have near as much drug trafficking and gang activity. 
But the, well, I mean, the that's junk, what you would. The in- junk trafficking, there's still a lot of in, oh, in Kaufman okay. County, but the gang activity, yes, no, not not as much. Although it's interesting that you mentioned that because we're going to mm. going to be that's going to be an angle in this case. And within a few months of Mark joining the Kaufman County DA's office, a new boss was sworn in: the newly elected district attorney, Mike McClelland. Mike McClelland grew up in the small town of Wortham, Texas and went to the University of Texas, where he received a degree in history. Afterward, he entered the Army, where he earned his master's degree in counseling, later becoming a clinical psychologist. He rose to the rank of major in the Army and retired after 23 years, although he stayed on in the reserves for a short period of time. Then, in 1990, at the age of 40, Mike decided to switch careers entirely and go to law school. Oh, wow. That's that's a big shift. Yeah, I know. And I love stories of people changing careers later in life. Yeah, I mean, you should. It, it yeah, it's very inspiring, isn't it? <laughs> he ended up graduating from the Texas Wesleyan School of Law in 1993. Oh, that's in Fort Worth. Yes, it is. And he began his own private practice. In 2002, Mike was hired on in what is now the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services to handle CPS cases. So, oh, that's tough. Exactly. So these were cases involving child abuse or neglect. He also worked as a public defender for Dallas County for a period of time. Man, it sounds like you, you have to have a lot of passion to work in those fields as a public defender and for CPS cases. Yeah, that's Oof. right. And throughout his career, he sort of gravitated to the cases specializing in mental health issues which makes sense given his background as a clinical psychologist. Yeah, that's interesting. What an evolution into a new career that draws on your previous experience. That's right. And then he tried to evolve again because he then started running for office. He actually first ran for a judge position, but he lost. And then he had previously ran for the DA position in 2006 before winning it in 2010. Okay, so this is something he he has a passion for, I'm guessing, because he's he's continually trying to get this position, even though he didn't get it the first time. Yeah, that's right. And it was a struggle for him because as we kind of went over his past career, we I didn't mention anything about criminal law experience. And that's because he actually didn't have much of any. And that's because he didn't have much of any experience in criminal law. And that's actually fairly unusual for a district attorney whose primary job is to prosecute felonies. Right. Yeah. That's interesting because it's quite different from everything we've learned about Mark's background, where he comes from that kind of background of criminal law. Yeah, you're exactly right. And you might think that they might have butted heads because of that, but they actually became really, really good friends. They had known each other and worked with each other a little bit because they had both worked in Dallas County for a time. But this was the first time they'd actually worked together in any real basis. With each other, yeah. Yeah, and they ended up forming this really great relationship. They they basically became kind of office buddies, constantly like chatting with each other in their offices and like eating lunch together every day. Apparently they really loved barbecue. Who doesn't? (laughs) I'm sure they have great barbecue in Kaufman. Oh, I bet they do. And it's their barbecue and law BFFs. I love it. Mike's wife, Cynthia, would also often visit the office, bringing in cakes and cookies for the staff. And it was a running joke about how big of a sweet tooth Mark had. 
and how he'd always come running every time she came in with treats. (laughs) But the normal routine at the office was shattered one day when a huge scandal rocked the Kaufman County political scene just a few months after Mike took office. The county's IT department, located in the sub-courthouse building a few blocks away from the courthouse, discovered that three Dell computer monitors were missing from their supply. They checked the building's security cameras and found footage which clearly showed Judge Eric Williams entering the IT department, leaving with the three monitors, and exiting the building with them. Oh, so this is the first instance of Judge Eric Williams, right? So Yes. Why would you be taking monitors? Well, let's introduce this Eric character. Sure. He was 46 years old at the time, and he was the newly elected Justice of the Peace for Precinct 1. In fact, he'd been sworn in at the same ceremony that Mike McClellan had been sworn in as DA just a few months before. Okay, so both just as new as as Mike. Yes. Now, just a little background, a little refresher on Texas law. Justices of the peace preside over the lowest state court, the people's court, it's often called. They hear civil and criminal cases involving misdemeanors and small claims, tenant and landlord disputes, traffic tickets, truancy cases, that sort of thing, probably most well-known for performing marriage ceremonies. So he might be on the lowest court, but he's still a judge. Yeah, exactly. And you'd think that a judge probably wouldn't be stealing things, right? That wouldn't be your first instinct. His office also happened to be in the same building that the IT department was in. Now, after digging through additional footage, they found two more times that the judge seemed to enter the IT room and leave with items that he never requested or told anyone about. Now, none of the things were worth much money. Even the three computer monitors together were only valued at about five to six hundred dollars. And as Justice of the Peace, Eric Williams had access to a fund of thousands of dollars with which he could buy any kind of office equipment his heart desired. So what's he up to? Well, the thing is, the county required that all requests be submitted to and handled by the IT department. That's pretty much how every place works, right? Sure. Shockingly, you aren't allowed to just walk in and take things without requesting them or without telling anyone. To make matters worse, the judge's behavior as seen in the security footage was deemed as being very suspicious. For example, each time Eric was seen entering the IT room and apparently taking things, it was on the weekend, so there were very few people around. Each time he had entered and exited the building through the back door, which he would have known didn't log people coming and going as the front entrance of the building did. Okay, so there was a way to track who was coming in through the front door, but not the back. So and he it seemed seems to have been mal- avoiding that door, yes. Yeah, malicious activity. Like, he's, he's trying to steal. Yes, and in the footage, he was described as sort of sneaking around, rifling through drawers and into in cabinets, mm. and constantly peering around corners or looking out windows. All of the things suggested that he was aware that he was doing something wrong and he was taking measures to prevent being busted. So we might have a judge who could be a would-be thief on our hands. Yeah, that was the issue at hand. Ooh. So the IT department handed the footage over to the sheriff's office, who consulted the DA's office. DA Mike McClelland 
elected to prosecute the charges against the judge himself, and he teamed up with ADA Mark Hasse. So Mark and Mike are teaming up to do this uh, prosecution against a person who is a judge in their own government. That's right. That's wild. Yeah. So about a week after the computer monitors went missing, Judge Williams was arrested at his office on the charge of burglary of a building. A second charge of theft of more than $500 but less than $1,500 was added later. This was usually a misdemeanor, but since Eric was a public servant, the theft charge was automatically bumped to a felony. This meant that if found guilty, the judge could face up to two years in prison. And that's just by uh, nature of being a judge committing that crime. It automatically gets upgraded. Wow. Okay. This is salacious. Yes, exactly. A search uncovered one of the missing monitors on his desk in his office and another inside his vehicle, which happened to be parked outside the SEP courthouse. Because remember, he was arrested in his office. Uh Uh-huh. However, the third monitor was never located even after a search of his home. So in the meantime, Eric Williams agreed to speak to investigators, and he explained that all of this was simply a misunderstanding. He said that he'd been working on implementing a video conferencing system for the four justices of the peace in the county. This would enable them to all have virtual sessions for certain matters instead of having to travel back and forth to the courthouse or to the jail. Okay, maybe he's just forward thinking. Exactly, and that's what he's trying to explain. He also said that he didn't quite get along with the head of the IT department, so he decided to circumvent dealing with the dep- with so he decided to circumvent dealing with the department at all by just taking what he needed without requesting it. Yeah. He said that he didn't think it was a big deal since it was well known he was trying to work on the video conferencing system and he would need supplies for it. He admitted to taking two of the three monitors, so the one that was found in his office and the one in his car, and he pointed out that those two had been found on county property. So a theft charge seemed excessive when there was no proof that the monitors had even left the county property at all. Yeah, how do you prove that there's any stealing of property if it's still on the property itself. Yes, exactly. He admitted to taking the third monitor at first, but said he'd returned it to the IT department after discovering that it didn't work. He suggested that there must have been security footage showing him returning the monitor, but that someone tampered with it and now it suddenly wasn't available. Hmm. Okay. It sounds like it could be a misunderstanding at this point. It kind of also sounds like they're making a mountain out of a molehill here for a reason. Like maybe he's not getting along with other people and he's already a problem and there's some inner politics going on where there's a reason why they're really prosecuting this case. Maybe, maybe. I mean, that's, I think, a part of what he was saying, but Uh it also might be a part of reality. Sure. The arrest of the Justice of the Peace was a huge scandal for the county, obviously. Sure, of course. And a total shock to the system. Up to that point, Eric Williams had been a well-respected part of the Kaufman County law enforcement and judicial scene since 1994, when he'd first been hired on to be the court coordinator under District Judge Glenn Ashworth. From there, Eric had graduated from Texas Wesleyan School of Law, 
and had began working for Kaufman County as a guardian ad litem, meaning he was appointed to investigate and make recommendations in child abuse and neglect cases in the county. So basically, they're appointed to represent the minor child's best interest. Eventually, Eric had opened up his own law office right across the street from the Kaufman County Courthouse. On top of that, Eric Williams was a captain and weapons instructor in the Texas State Guard, and he was a sheriff's reserve officer for the Kaufman County Sheriff's Office. He had been a licensed peace officer for decades, meaning he was allowed to open carry firearms and make arrests. He was even a member of Mensa. What? Yeah. He had connections all throughout local law enforcement and the justice system, from police officers to private investigators to attorneys and judges, many who considered him not just a colleague but a friend. I mean, he even served in the same regiment in the State Guard as the Kaufman chief of police. So he's very well connected, very intelligent too. Yes, absolutely. Now, although some considered Eric Williams a little strange, for example— For fun, he often rode around town on his Segway wearing full camo combat (laughs) fatigues uh, with an AR-15 strapped to his back. Why? I mean, every town's got somebody who does this, I think. But it's it's probably not the (laughs) justice of the peace, though. Yeah, but I mean, he also takes his, his... his position as somebody in the Texas State Guard, a sheriff's reserve officer, very seriously. Wow, he's uh, Kaufman County's modern-day Segway Batman. Pretty much, pretty okay. much. But, you know, as you can see, overall, he was generally regarded as an upstanding citizen and a nice guy. And the reaction to the charges was mixed. Some people agreed that the evidence was clear, that he had stolen the computer monitors for personal use— But others thought that the charges against him were pretty ridiculous, saying that he was basically being threatened with jail time for essentially avoiding some paperwork. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. But that wasn't all. Eric claimed that the whole thing was a setup, a convenient way to get him shunned and humiliated, all orchestrated by one man in particular, D.A. Mike McClelland. You see, Mike and Eric had known each other for quite some time since they both had worked cases as attorneys involving CPS. Yeah, similar fields. Mm-hmm. And it said that they never really got along to begin with. Then, during Mike's first run for the DA position in 2006, Eric wrote an open letter that was published in the local newspaper, the Kaufman Herald. In the letter, he very loosely hinted that Mike had done something bad or unethical during their work together, and he urged people to vote for his opponent instead. Mere days later, Mike went on to lose the election by a very small margin, and it's possible that Eric's open letter might have played a role in the defeat. Okay, well, we're mm-hmm. we're starting to see some scars here. Yes. So either way, Eric maintained that Mike resented him for the letter and had steered the DA's office to prosecute him because of a personal grudge. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Using this argument, his lawyers even try to have Mike removed from the case, but Mike denied having any hard feelings about the letter. He testified at the hearing that he believed his opponent had been behind the letter the whole time and that his opponent had, quote, just found someone dumb enough to sign it. Yeah, it does sound personal. He said that otherwise, he and Eric didn't know each other, and they hadn't really spoken other than a few words. The judge ended up allowing Mike to remain on the case. Together, Mike and Mark tried to offer Eric a deal. They asked him to plead guilty to abuse of office, a misdemeanor, and resign his position as justice of the peace. In return, He would serve probation, so no jail time, and he would be able to keep his license to practice law. So it it sounds like Mike and Mark are giving him an opportunity to walk away and continue working and being active in law, uh, but not be in that position anymore. Which, quite frankly, I feel like it was a fairly fair deal. It's one of those things where it almost seems polite, where they're like, we're giving you an opportunity to walk away. Yeah. But Eric, unwilling to plead guilty, refused the offer. And so the case moved forward to trial in March of 2012. At trial, Mike and Mark hammered Eric, calling him a liar, a crooked official, and a thief. Meanwhile, part of Eric's defense was accusing the DA's office, and specifically Mike McClelland, of having a political vendetta against him, and that the case was, quote, an attempt to settle a political grudge. In the end, though, the jury sided with the state and found Eric guilty on both counts. Ooh, the tea is getting spilt. Mm-hmm. But the most interesting stuff came out in the punishment phase, where Eric's fate would be decided. Mike and Mark brought out two witnesses whose testimony was hoped to demonstrate that Eric wasn't just a thief, but that he was dangerous and potentially violent. The first witness was an attorney named John. He testified that about a year earlier, he and Eric were supposed to have a big meeting with another attorney and all their clients together, but there had been a misunderstanding with the meeting time. The whole situation had been resolved very easily, according to John, but not before Eric had showed up at his office, screaming that he was going to kill him, his wife, his kids, burn his house down, and stab him to death. Oh, God. John said that he thankfully wasn't at the office at the time and that another attorney had been able to talk Eric down. Eric's reaction was obviously wildly disproportionate to the situation, basically threatening to murder someone and their family over a scheduling conflict. Yeah. Their next witness had an even more harrowing interaction with Eric. Her name was Janice. She said that they had casually started dating a while but she'd ended up breaking things off with him. She said that at first, he seemed to take the breakup well. 
But the next time she saw him was at another court coordinator's conference, where he approached her and asked her to have dinner with him. When she turned him down, he took out a pistol and told her that he wanted to give it to her son, who was 12 years old and whom Eric had never met. What? Yeah. That's weird. Exactly. That's kind of how Janice felt. She felt very uncomfortable, and she basically tried to ignore him. What what does that even mean? Don't know. Does he mean he wants to give it to him like he wants to shoot her son or just like... Well, he was putting... He was playing it off like, I want to give this pistol to your son. I don't know if it was meant to be a threat at that point or it was meant to be a gift. I don't know. Obviously, very, very weird. Weird thing to say to someone. Yeah. But later that night, he approached her once again. She said he told her, I have a gun. If you walk away, I'll use it. I don't have anything to lose. What? So at this point, this is where she becomes very afraid. Yeah. And she starts to cry. She was able to get away from him and she called the police. Officers searched the conference area for him, but he was gone. Couldn't find him. Officers even posted up outside of her hotel room that night, all night long, and he never showed up. The next morning, they escorted her to the conference center. She walked in and there was Eric. (laughs) <laughs> wow. So she reported him to the police officer who was there and they took him away. She said that she had considered pressing charges, but she later received a phone call from investigators urging her to drop the matter. She said that they told her that Judge Ashworth, Eric's boss at the time, was taking responsibility for the situation and that he would ensure that Eric would never bother her again. And so she agreed to drop the matter. Janice's testimony drove home the idea that Eric was dangerous, and it seemed that he had used his connections to avoid prosecution before. Yeah, it's definitely what it seems like. Yeah. So Mike and Mark used Janice and John's stories to argue that Eric was deserving of the maximum sentence of two years in prison. They were basically saying he's not just a thief. This is a man who is dangerous. He has done dangerous things, made very strange and violent threats against people. Yeah. And has a history of using his connections to get out of it. Yeah. Mike said that Eric was, quote, a man bereft of honor and told the judge and told the judge, quote, you're not going to rehabilitate him, but you can get him out of the public eye. You can get him what you can get him away from these people who are absolutely terrified of him. Meanwhile, Eric's wife of 15 years, Kim, testified on his behalf. She said that Eric was a good man and a good husband. She described how he was the sole breadwinner of their household since she was very ill. She suffered from advanced rheumatoid arthritis as well as other health conditions that prevented her from working. She said that Eric took care of her as well as her mother and father, both of whom were both elderly and ailing. And she said he did it all while caring for his own illness as Eric himself had type 1 diabetes. The defense hoped that Kim's testimony would help the judge sympathize with Eric and see that imprisoning him would negatively impact many of the innocent people around him. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, maybe Kim's words did help the judge sympathize because he ended up giving Eric no prison time, just two years of probation, along with 80 hours of community service. Okay, so he's looking at what he was looking at before the trial, where he might get a chance to just walk away with probation. 
No, sir. Because even if he avoided prison, Eric lost everything else. Oh, yeah. He loses his ability to be yes. to practice law, to be a lawyer. He was quickly removed from office. He lost his pra- uh, license to practice law. With that came the reality of losing his position of power, his career, his income, and also his and his wife's health insurance. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, he did lose everything then. Exactly. And eventually, Eric was also excused from the Texas State Guard, something that he was quite proud of and something that I think was a big part of his identity. So these computer monitors worth about $500 ended up costing him absolutely everything. Yeah, his whole life. Yeah, and that wasn't even in the end of it. The DA's office was planning another case against him, accusing him of misappropriating money from the county's law library to make other unapproved purchases for his office. That meant another trial with all the costs associated with it, along with another threat of prison time. Wow. So things were pretty bad for Eric Williams right now. But it was a big win for the DA's office, and it helped solidify Mike McClelland as a DA who was adept at criminal law despite his inexperience, as well as someone who was an elected official willing to fight corruption in the county government. Obviously, Mike and Mark were happy with the win and even bragged about it a little. However, friends, family, and colleagues around Mike and Mark reported that they were also concerned with how Eric would react now that his life had been essentially destroyed. Right. I mean, he is a gun-loving kind of guy. He's made threats with guns before. He seems kind of dangerous. I mean, exactly right. They knew from his work in law enforcement and the military, at least alongside those organizations, And as the weapons instructor for his regiment in the Texas State Guard, Eric owned a small arsenal of weapons. In fact, they'd found weapons in all of their searches related to the computer monitors. So they'd found weapons in his office, in his car, uh, all throughout his home. You know, it was just everywhere. But they were all legal, right? Absolutely. Yes. That in of itself wasn't super concerning considering the setting. Small town Texas. Plenty of people collect guns as a hobby. Even Mike himself, probably due to his military background, he had a ton of guns and loved guns. But they were worried because of their investigation into his background. They uncovered so many stories of Eric's bizarre, angry meltdowns and threats of violence over much less serious matters than a felony conviction and loss of livelihood. Yeah. No, I could see their their reason for concern, too. If he's already threatened people before in much smaller matters, then what is he going to do now? Yeah. In fact, Mike warned his staff privately to keep an eye out for Eric. And he also began encouraging them to get their own concealed carry licenses. Mark even renewed his license to carry and began carrying a handgun around him as well something he never really had done before, even while prosecuting Dallas's worst drug cartel-related crimes. Oh, wow. Yes. So, so as a direct reaction to this case. Well, I mean, that's the question. Did, did he start carrying specifically because of his fear of Eric Williams, or was it he was just getting into the culture of Kaufman County, especially with his boss mm-hmm. and friend who liked to carry guns? Mm-hmm. There is plenty of evidence to support The fact that Mike and Mark personally considered Eric to be unstable and perhaps dangerous, but to what degree they took his threat seriously is under debate. Hmm. But eventually, 
the dust settled on the situation, and things around the DA's office largely went back to normal. The old justice of the peace, who Eric had beaten in the election, was installed in his place, and Mike and Mark, as well as the people of Kaufman County, were largely happy to move on. So about a half a year or so went by. The DA's office was located in the courthouse in downtown Kaufman. And just like most little towns that are the county seat, the courthouse is at the center of the town square with lots of small businesses and offices and shops and restaurants all around it. And it basically dominates the downtown area of the town. Oh, believe me. As I've been driving through all of Texas recently, this is every little town in Texas. They have a little square with shops around it and the courthouse is dead center. And you have to literally drive around the courthouse to go through the town. That's right. That's exactly how Weatherford is is set up. Oh, the Uh, traffic circle. Yeah, because Weatherford is the county seat of Parker County. That's right. So... As you can imagine, there's a lot of bustling activity immediately around the courthouse area. Lots of people either walking or driving by. Employee parking for the courthouse was located off-site. Now, there were a few different lots available, but the one Mark Hasse used was located about a block down the street from the courthouse on East Grove Street. Even though it's only a street away from the courthouse and the town square, this is a pretty secluded little area. The lot itself is your average little parking lot, just a big slab of concrete with lines drawn on it, open to the public and with no security. So even though it was secluded, parking there meant a fairly short and easy walk to the courthouse. Mark parked his truck in this lot every morning in the same parking spot. The morning of Thursday, January 31st, 2013, was no different. Just after 8.30 a.m., Mark parked in his usual spot, grabbed his briefcase, and began walking out of the parking lot. When he got to the sidewalk lining the street, Mark was suddenly approached by a masked man dressed all in black. Three eyewitnesses were in the immediate vicinity and saw what happened next. The first was a worker from the Gomez Paint and Body Shop located right across the street. The second was a woman in a building nearby. And the third was an attorney named Linda, who was in her car driving up the street and headed to the parking lot when all of this happened. The witnesses said that the man in black was dressed in full tactical gear, including a bulletproof vest and military boots, and that he was wearing some sort of covering over his whole face. They guessed something like a balaclava. He accosted Mark and shoved him, and Mark pushed him in return. A few words were exchanged, and the worker at the auto shop said he thought he heard Mark say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The masked man then pulled out a gun, raised it to the side of Mark's face, and pulled the trigger. Oh my God. He continued firing five more times at Mark as he pushed him to the ground. He then spun around, pulled out a second gun, and fired two more shots into the air as he began running towards a light-colored sedan parked in the parking lot near where Mark had parked his truck. The man jumped into the passenger side of the car, and it took off, turned out into the street, and began driving away. Linda, the attorney in her car, witnessed the shooting happen right in front of her. She witnessed the entire thing. And she had milliseconds to process what she'd just seen and decide what she was going to do about it. 
Sure, yeah, it's super shocking. Well, she was already in her car, so her first thought was to follow the vehicle. As she drove, she grabbed her cell phone and she started dialing 911 with her intention, of course, to report the shooting and the location of the getaway car. But to her frustration, she kept dialing, kept dialing. She couldn't get through. It turns out later she would find out that due to her panic and her confusion, she was kind of, she was using a new cell phone and she was unfamiliar with it. So that was kind of part of it as well. Oh, okay. All these things converged together to that meant that she kept dialing 991 instead oh, of 911. No. But that was something that she only figured out later. All, at the time, it was she just couldn't get through to 911. But she had the best interest in mind. Oh, of course. Yeah. She also kept looking for a license plate for the getaway car, but she saw that the getaway car didn't have one at all. After following the car for about three blocks, Linda gave up her pursuit, and she returned to the man she'd just seen shot. She found him lying face up in a pool of blood, still breathing, and she began trying to help him as best she could. Within a few minutes, a Kaufman police officer arrived at the scene, having heard the shots from a few blocks away. He took over for Linda in trying to help Mark. At this point, a crowd had started to gather around Mark, and someone realized that the person lying there was ADA Mark Hassey. That's actually when Linda herself realized that it was him. Oh, man. Even though she'd been she'd seen his shooting and been working on him herself, she ha- didn't realize it was him. She knew him personally. Well, and also, he got shot in the face, right? Yeah, that's true. After a few minutes, the ambulance arrived, and Mark was taken to Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital. However, he arrived without a heartbeat, and he was declared dead soon after. He was still wearing the gun that he had been carrying around on him. So he never drew it? No, it was thought that he had been ambushed so quickly that he hadn't had time to go for it. And it was also wintertime, and he had been wearing a very heavy coat. Okay. And it was thought that that probably sort of impeded him from getting to it anyways. Yeah. Mark had been shot five times with the most severe wound in the side of his face, in front of his left ear. The bullet had passed through his skull and broke apart in his brain, causing massive damage. From the eyewitness accounts, this had also been the very first shot, point blank to the side of the head, in execution, where Mark had been looking right at his killer. So the other shots were just maliciously done that... That was probably the killing blow, right? The one probably, to the side of the yes. The other four shots were to his back, and they went through his chest and lugs. They also right. all broke apart and caused a significant amount of internal damage. Although no intact bullets were recovered, they were able to collect several bullet fragments from Mark's body, as well as another large fragment that had gotten lodged in the jacket that Mark was wearing. So we don't have a full intact bullet, but we have these fragments. Were they able to piece enough of these fragments back together or analyze some of the fragments to get ballistics evidence? Yes, they were. They were able to get enough bullet fragments. I don't know if they could recover like a complete bullet that was fired from one of these weapons, but it was it was a pretty good amount of evidence. They were also able to, at the scene of the crime, recover bullet fragments that had been lodged in the cement sidewalk from him shooting, you know, basically into the ground. Okay. Um, there was one, There was at least one that he shot that did not hit Mark, but that was, I think, probably near him. And I think that's where the most of the bullet fragments came from. Gotcha. 
However, there were no shell casings recovered at the shooting scene. Since none of the witnesses reported seeing the shooter stopping to pick shell casings up, this meant that it was likely that both guns used in the shooting had been revolvers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they don't eject their casings. Instead, they keep them within the cylinder of the weapon. Right. So... Yeah, so what's up with this uh, tan sedan that's missing a license plate? Were there any other details about the the make or model or anything like that? Unfortunately, no. So all of the witnesses agreed that the getaway vehicle was a light-colored sedan, but none of them was sure on the make or the model. Eventually, they all together settled on it being a Ford Taurus or something like it. Now, that's a very basic, you know, car. There's a million of them on the street. Yes. They weren't even really particularly sure on the color. So it it was either gold or light colored or white. They weren't really sure exactly. But a very mass produced vehicle. So hard to track down. And also like off white colors are probably some of the more popular. Like if you're not going to have a white Especially in Texas. Yeah. Because of the heat. We tend to avoid dark colors, Mm -hmm. I feel. So there's probably just thousands of these in the county. Exactly. And no one got a good look at the driver at all, other than to say it looked like a shadowy figure wearing black. Mm. And some kind of face, balaclava, you said. On the shooter, yes. Nobody could see the driver enough to see if they were wearing anything in mm -hmm. particular. So, yeah, there's no no real description of the shooter or the driver either. So that makes it Besides the military fatigues right. or the or the SWAT gear, you know, that they were looking. So military or law enforcement adjacent looking items is what he was wearing. Yeah, and it was mostly dark colored, right? Like, yes, it was all black mm-hmm. from what I from what they said. Man, that's not a lot to go on. No, not at all. It was, however, obvious right away that this was no random attack, but that Mark had been murdered in the line of duty. A planned and organized murder of a public servant meant to send a message. The fact that it was in broad daylight, near the courthouse with no concern for witnesses, seemed to underscore that. Yeah, it seems like a hit. Yeah. It also wasn't just a lone shooter, as we said. We, yeah. we know that there were at least two people involved, maybe more. So it was immediately feared that this could mean further attacks against the DA's office, the courthouse or even public places or schools. So within minutes of the shooting, law enforcement converged on this town square and they shut everything down, including the courthouse. And other places around Kaufman were put on lockdown as well, schools especially. I can't even imagine what uh, Mike's family is thinking at this point. Of course, yes. Everybody is terrified. Everybody who works with him is terrified. Plus they have to deal with the fact that their friend was just murdered. Yeah, for sure. So, of course, there was a mass community response to this murder. It was especially scary for the people who worked at or had business at the courthouse. Remember that all of those people had to eventually leave that day and walk back out to their cars with the killer still on the loose. Literally through the crime scene, because I guess they're all parked in that parking lot. Not all of them, but a lot of them, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Eventually, fully armed officers in SWAT gear were brought in to escort everyone at the courthouse to their vehicles, and this procession continued for weeks to come, with many judges and attorneys even opting to wear bulletproof vests on their journeys to and from the courthouse. 
Other Kaufman County officials and leaders even received round-the-clock armed security at their homes. When the town square and the courthouse did open back up eventually, security was ramped up to the maximum. Obviously, everyone was really on edge, wondering if something else was going to happen. Sure, yeah. Who's going to be next? Yeah. Am I a target? Now, Mike McClelland actually was not at the courthouse when the shooting occurred, so he was one of the first people to hear about Mark's death. He was devastated by the news. Mark was a man he respected as a lawyer and as a friend. And so it was a painful loss for him personally. Yeah, they were very close. But Mike also felt confident about who was responsible. The recently disgraced ex-judge Eric Williams. Okay, so he's already trying to point the finger at Eric. Oh, yes. In fact, he was so sure that Eric was involved that he sought out Sheriff David Burns and asked that he send deputies out to speak with Eric right away. And so, just two hours after Mark's murder, a sheriff's deputy and constable appeared at Eric's house to question him. Eric lived in Kaufman, not too far from the courthouse, and he answered the door wearing a sling on his arm. Okay, interesting. Is this like a a fake sling? Uh, Tell me more. (laughs) Well, he explained that he'd recently had shoulder surgery because he suffered from a condition called frozen shoulder. This is where the joint capsule becomes really stiff and tight, and it causes pain and immobility of the shoulder. Now, immediately, this allayed a lot of suspicion against Eric. You need considerable arm strength to shoot a gun, and the eyewitnesses hadn't described the shooter as in a sling or nursing any kind of injury or anything. So it didn't seem possible that Eric was the killer. Okay. The officers told him that Mark Hassey had been murdered earlier that morning, and they asked him where he'd been all day. Eric appeared shocked and saddened by the news, and he said that he'd left earlier in the day to go pick a prescription for his wife, Kim, but said that otherwise he'd been home at the house all day alone with her. Eric allowed the officers to look around his house, and they didn't notice any blood, weapons, or tactical gear in the open that would have connected Eric to the crime. There was nothing at all. Eric also agreed to a gunshot residue test, which later came up negative. All of this, from Eric's cooperation, along with his apparent injured shoulder, helped to absolve him of much suspicion right from the start. He also agreed to have his attorneys send over all of his medical records regarding his frozen shoulder injury, as well as the surgery he'd had to correct the issue. Okay, so he he appears to be cooperative at this point. My only thing is, if this person was really wearing all this tactical gear... Would he have any gunshot residue on his flesh or his hands and his arms if he was covered up and all those materials are stored elsewhere? Well, we can also remember that a gunshot residue test, really all you got to do is wash your hands yep. and you would you can be found negative. So it's not. But again, this is it's all of sure. these things together is is making people think it can't be Eric. It seems like the normal process to like get an yeah. alibi, you know, where were you? And it seems like he's being cooperative. Exactly. But while Eric's alibi seemed to ease some of Mike's suspicions that Eric was the shooter, he did continue to remain fairly outspoken that he believed Eric was somehow involved. 
By the afternoon of Mark's death, law enforcement officers from local, state, and federal agencies, including the Kaufman Police Department, the Kaufman County Sheriff's Department and Constable's Office, Texas Department of Public Safety officers, including the Texas Rangers, and agents from the FBI, ATF, and DEA, all gathered in Kaufman to help aid in the investigation. I mean, obviously, this is like priority number one in the country at this point. Oh, yeah. Quickly, the gathered group formed a task force headed by Kaufman Police Chief Chris Albaugh. Now, with all of these agencies involved, it meant that resources were fairly unlimited. And immediately, they set about combing through Mark's current caseload, as well as his old cases, back from Dallas County, hoping to find a lead in any of them. Sure. But Mark had prosecuted hundreds of cases over the course of his decades-long career, many of them involving violent offenders, murderers, members of gangs and drug cartels. And every one of the cases he prosecuted involved a potential suspect. So you can see what an enormous undertaking this was. Yeah, sure. I bet that's really difficult to come through all of those and be like, could any of these could have involved someone who wanted to kill Mark? Yeah. The task force also gave state and federal agents the opportunity to talk to local law enforcement, many of whom knew Eric Williams personally. Remember that Alba, who now headed the entire task force, was actually in Eric's regiment in the state guard. They were friends. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes. So although there were a few dissidents who maybe kind of thought Eric, maybe they should take a look at him a little bit harder, overwhelmingly the response was that there was no way Eric Williams was involved. Now, Mike didn't mention his suspicions against Eric Williams publicly, but he did make a statement at a press conference about Mark's death. Quote, We lost a really, really good man. He was an excellent friend and a spectacular prosecutor. I hope that the people who did this are watching because we are confident that we're going to find you, pull you out of whatever hole you're in, and let the people of Kaufman County prosecute you to the full extent of the law. He went on to appeal for anyone with knowledge of the case to step forward, saying, quote, anything you can do to help us get our hands on this scum would be appreciated. Eventually, though, due to the close connection to the case, Mike, as well as the rest of the Kaufman District Attorney's Office, were removed from the case. And two special prosecutors from Dallas, named Toby Shook and Bill Worski, were appointed to take over. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. Now, it's no wonder that in a huge case like this, involving the murder of an ADA in a small Texas town, became huge news across the nation. Although we can all agree that the job of a criminal prosecutor is a dangerous one, bound to make a lot of potentially dangerous people very unhappy, the truth is that very few prosecutors have been murdered in the line of duty in modern U.S. history. Yeah, you're right. It does not happen as much as maybe you might think it could happen or have a potential to happen. It just it's not something that's in the news very often. Yeah, I mean, according to the L.A. Times, the National District Attorneys Association stated that Mark Hasse was just the 12th prosecutor in the nation's history to be killed in the line of duty. Wow. So this is a very rare crime that makes it more sensational. And honestly, I think the setting of something like this happening in like this little rural town also made this story spread. Mm hmm. 
And unfortunately, in this case, what also spread was a whole lot of misinformation. Within a day or two of Mark's murder, articles and news pieces linking his death to the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas, or the ABT, started popping up. Really? Yes, and very quickly, the ABT angle began dominating the conversation about the case. Do you know much about the ABT? No, I don't. Um, I, I know that they're bad. Y- yes, they are bad. We can <laughs> yeah. all agree on that. But I've, I've never really done any, uh, you know, rabbit hole exploration about ah. like their, their organization, how it works. Well, or... here you go. Okay. The ABT is a white supremacist street and prison gang formed right here in Texas. Now, because of the name, you might have assumed that they are affiliated with the Aryan Brotherhood the white supremacist gang that formed in the California prison system in the 1960s. Yes, that would have been me. I would have raised my hand at that moment. Okay, well, you would have been wrong. Because back in 1981, the founders of the ABT contacted the Aryan Brotherhood leadership and requested approval to form their own chapter within the Texas prison system. And the Aryan Brotherhood said no. (laughs) Undaunted they went ahead and decided to call themselves the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas anyway, making them, I guess, some sort of unofficial fan club. Weird. Yeah, yeah, isn't that weird? That being said, today the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas is considered to be one of the largest and most violent gangs in the nation, with numerous murders attributed to them. There's estimated to be about 3,000 members of the ABT inside Texas prisons hundreds more in federal custody, and then an additional number of members out on the streets. In fact, that's what makes the ABT so dangerous is the fact that they have members on the inside and the outside of prison. Right. Now, remember, they aren't just a hate group. The ABT is actively involved in organized crime, with their big moneymaker being the manufacture and trafficking of meth all across Texas. And if you've lived in Texas, you know... Got a big meth problem. I mean, I I guess that's across the country, really. Yeah, methamphetamines, uh, really big, especially in North Texas, too, in Mm -hmm. uh, Tarrant and Dallas County. And that's actually something I learned from from this case is the ABT both makes and traffics meth. And so if you're buying meth, I guess you're supporting the ABT, which is really scary. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, in the past couple of decades, it was always kind of an idea that uh, if you were you biker meth, was a thing, you know, ABT meth. They have strongholds in in several towns where some of my family have been, even in like Azel, which is northeast or northwest of Fort Worth. There's a big presence of them there selling meth. Yeah. So the question is, how did the ABT get tangled up in the investigation of Mark's murder? Right. Well, in August of 2012, about five months before Mark's murder, Kaufman County Chief Prosecutor Brandy Fernandez tried and won a case against a member of the ABT. This man had kidnapped another ABT member to punish him for skipping their ABT meetings. This all had ended up with a huge shootout with law enforcement. I I don't think anybody was killed, but obviously it was a big mess. Sure. Brandy Fernandez had secured two life sentences against the leader. This was a big win for the county, obviously. And afterward, she had continued working with federal agencies in other cases against the ABT. Three months later, in November, 
Houston FBI secured indictments against 15 members and leaders of the ABT on racketeering charges. The Houston FBI gave a huge press conference about the charges, celebrating what they called a huge blow to the organization. At the end of the press conference, they thanked other agencies for their help, including the Kaufman County District Attorney's Office, referring, of course, to Brandy Fernandez's work. Okay, so we have the this big ABT member that's brought down and then a larger crackdown on ABT yes. that's happening in Houston that's associated with their work in Kaufman County. Yes. Now, the very next month, the Texas Department of Public Safety issued a bulletin saying that there was credible evidence to suggest that the ABT was planning to retaliate. It oh. read, quote, High-ranking members are involved in issuing orders to inflict mass casualties or death to law enforcement officials who were involved in cases where Aryan Brotherhood of Texas are facing life sentences of the death penalty, end quote. Okay, well, that seems serious. Well, I mean, kind of. This really was just sort of a vague warning that the DPS was issuing to law enforcement. This did not go out to the media. This just went out to law enforcement. In response to some sort of vague intel they had about the ABT. So it was all very vague. But then the next month after that is when Mark Hassey, chief ADA of Kaufman County, was murdered. The timing of the murder in relation to the threats of the ABT immediately made reporters suspect that they were related. Mm hmm. And that Mark's death was just the first in a series of planned attacks against law enforcement or the criminal justice system based on that DPS bulletin that went out. Yeah, that's frightening. That they got wind of, basically, yes. So they're expecting like a deluge of other attacks. and Yes, and of course. And the people really doubled down when reports started circulating that Mark Hasse had been heavily involved in the prosecution against the ABT. Yeah, sure. The problem, however, was that it simply wasn't quite true. Kaufman County had two district courts, and Brandy Fernandez was the chief prosecutor of the other one. So she basically had Mark Hassey's job in the other district court in Kaufman County. Oh. Neither Mark nor anyone at his office had been involved in the recent charges against the ABT at all. So it's like if they would have attacked anyone, they would have attacked her. Yes, exactly. It didn't make sense why he would be on their hit list at all, nor why he would be their primary target. Interesting. In addition, quite honestly, authorities didn't believe that the ABT was sophisticated enough to pull something like this off. They were known for their meth operation, not for skilled assassination. It just wasn't their style. But even though authorities were pretty sure that the ABT wasn't involved in Mark's death, this angle was picked up and spread far and fast by the media. So just about everything that you read or that you watched at the time essentially blamed Mark's murder on the ABT. Now, as Catherine Casey so beautifully points out in her book, the press biting on this ended up having real-world consequences for this case. With their name suddenly in the media, many ABT members serving prison time decided that this was a great opportunity to capitalize on this hot news story. 
Multiple members in prison started claiming that they had information pertaining to Mark Hassey's murder, trying to leverage that for lighter sentences or other perks. Oh, okay. So yeah. you're, we're, we're going off on a wild goose chase now. Mm, yeah, okay. a little bit. And of course, tip lines got flooded with tons of tips regarding ABT and their possible involvement with you know Mark's death and et cetera, et cetera. A considerable amount of the task force time was used up chasing down all of these leads that started pouring in regarding the ABT simply because the media kept reporting these links that really weren't there. Then on March 19th, about a month and a half after Mark's death, another murder of an official in the criminal justice system shocked the country, this time in Colorado. It was the state's chief of prisons, Tom Clements, who'd been found shot to death in the entryway of his house. The suspect in his murder was 28-year-old Evan Spencer Ebel, an ex-convict and member of the 211 crew, a white supremacist gang within the Colorado prison system. Ebel was suspected of first murdering 27-year-old Domino's pizza delivery driver Nathan Leon in order to steal his uniform, which he then used to disguise himself and pose as a pizza delivery man at the prison chief's house. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So when so he killed Tom, someone to take over his delivery man's yes. outfit and then show up and kill. Oh, wow. Yes. Wow. Isn't that crazy? So when Tom Clements opened the door, he, of course, shot him several times and then fled the scene, fled the state even. And this triggered a massive manhunt for him. Immediately, there were fears that the case in Colorado was connected to Mark Hassey's murder. Right. People wondered if the 211 crew and the ABT were allies or somehow working together to systematically kill people involved in the criminal justice system. Sure, yeah. I mean, it seems to track. Yeah. Then, two days after the murder of the prison's chief, Ebel was killed in a shootout with police near Decatur, Texas. Only so he's about, going back to Texas. Well, that's the thing. It's only it's only a hundred miles from Kaufman, so that further confused things because it suggested that he had yeah. some kind of connection to Texas. Huh. The gun that Ebel carried on him at the time of his death was found to match the bullets recovered at the Colorado crime scene, but it wasn't a revolver and wasn't, therefore, the weapon that they were looking for in Mark Hassey's case. Eventually, investigators figured out that Ebel had been in Colorado at the time of Hassey's murder. And ultimately, it was determined that the most likely reason he was located in Texas at all was that he was trying to flee to Mexico. So he was traveling oh, from okay. Colorado to Mexico after he killed the prison gotcha. chief. So he's not, the, he's not Mark's killer. But that doesn't change the fact that these murders could be connected via an organization of the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas. You're right. So we don't have the killer in Marcassi's case, but it still leaves a lot of people nervous that there's something going on, right? Right. By this time, two months had passed since Marcassi's murder. And even with all the resources available, the investigation had stalled completely. The huge task force, consisting of so many different agencies, eventually dwindled in number and was officially shut down entirely. But even though the investigation still continued and people were still, of course, mourning Mark, things were also slowly going back to normal. Security at the courthouse was decreased, 
and eventually Mark's colleagues stopped constantly looking over their shoulder. Security details on Kaufman County officials also ended altogether, including the detail assigned to District Attorney Mike McClellan's home. By the time Easter weekend rolled around, while things weren't back to normal, they were starting to trend in that direction. In fact, Mike and his wife Cynthia were planning an Easter celebration at their home, the first big event since Mark's death. No one expected that the holiday weekend would bring even more bloodshed to the Kaufman County District Attorney's Office. Oh, no. And that is where we will end today. But we will be back next week to pick up right here in this part of the story where we left off. Wow, what a fascinating tale. I mean, we're we're talking about like gangs and like organized crime. I don't know where yeah, it's we're going. <laughs> it's a lot. I don't know where we're going to end up at the end of it, but I'm here for the ride and uh it's it's been really riveting so far. So yeah, I just can't wait for part 2 and the culmination of this and to get some answers and what's going on. But in the meantime, would you like to hear some good news? Yes, very much. Doesn't involve dogs or candy. No, but it, it it does involve space and science. Oh, I love those things. Great. Let's okay. do it. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the show. This is, of course, good news. And our story for you today uh, involves some of the things that Aaron and I love a lot, which are space and science. And we're huge fans of uh, probably, you know, dystopian or apocalyptic type movies like Armageddon from when we were growing up. Great movie about an asteroid coming and striking the Earth. And what can we do about that? Can we send astronauts onto an asteroid and break it up and save all of humankind? Or might there be something we can do uh, otherwise? Well, tell us the deets. All we right. Hot, hot science deets? I have hot science deets for us. <laughs> this story comes to us from NPR. It was written by James Dubeck. Uh, this was on October 11th. So two weeks ago, NASA declared that they were able to successfully knock an asteroid off course that was headed towards Earth. This is big news. Obviously, there's been some conjecture in the, the astrophysics community of, uh, can we actually do this? Can we divert an asteroid from hitting planet Earth and yeah. save us? I hope so. Well, this is like the initial test to try and figure out the science of how it all works out. So... This test had hopes of developing future research into planetary defense from rogue asteroids that were headed towards us. So this project actually involves multiple asteroids. This is a, a double asteroid. So you have one central asteroid that's coming towards Earth, but then a second one that's kind of floating around it, orbiting it. So it's a, it's a weird little coupling of asteroids that are headed towards us. Okay. The double asteroid redirection test, a.k.a. DART, was overseen by scientists at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. Aha, there's the Texas connection. This is the Texas connection. <laughs> and of course, there's also uh, Kennedy Space Center in Florida and um, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I don't know where that one is. But the, they're all coordinating. I believe with that's the, also in Houston. It might be, yeah. They're all coordinating together to basically slam something into 
this asteroid to see if they can change its orbit in and around the other asteroids. So they're attacking the little asteroid that's orbiting around the big asteroid. Oh, and seeing if that will change the trajectory. Mm-hmm. I never quite understood that part. Okay. Well, that's why I'm here for the deets. Wow. Thank you for these hot... Hot science no, deets. Hot science deets. I love it. Okay, I great. Got, I got the asteroid receipts. I assumed they were attacking just the asteroid. The big one. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So like... Basically, I guess it's a litmus test where if you can move the smaller asteroid and alter its orbit around the larger asteroid, then it's a proof of concept of how much force density of a projectile it would take to move the larger object. Ah, okay. And what they found out was that it actually worked. They slammed a, a, a satellite metal object into this asteroid and it actually changed its trajectory. How it works is, at the time of this test, 7 million miles away from Earth. So this is really far away. Yeah, crazy. (laughs) I know. A lot of the stories made it seem like, oh, it was like really coming close and it was near Earth. No, this is is millions of miles away from our planet. The asteroid dubbed Dimorphos, which I feel is an evil villain. (laughs) Dimorphos. That is a great name. (laughs) It feels like a member of the the Borg in Star Trek. I am Dimorphos. (laughs) It is orbiting a larger asteroid, Didymus. Okay. I serve Didymus. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Its rotation around the larger asteroid has been observed several times, uh, and it usually takes 11 hours and 55 minutes for Dimorphos to make its complete orbit around Didymus. Okay. After, I know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Very detailed in the hierarchy and the lore of, of these two asteroids. But after the DART spacecraft made impact two weeks ago, the orbit has shortened its orbit to 11 hours and 23 minutes, meaning it had a basically a half an hour change in its orbit. So it did have an effect. Uh-huh. Quote, this is a watershed moment for defense. And NASA Ambassador Bill Nelson said on Tuesday to the media, Uh, This mission shows that NASA is trying to be ready for whatever the universe throws at us, literally. The two asteroids pose no threat to Earth currently, but the test is proof of concept that if another asteroid does appear to be headed towards Earth, scientists have a way to push it off course. Quote, For the first time ever, humanity has changed the orbit of a planetary body that was passing near Earth. So that's huge, right? I mean, we've affected cosmic bodies that are flying near Earth and change yeah. their tra- trajectory. I mean, it's it's science fiction come to reality. It's pretty neat. It's literally Armageddon. Although I would say, I know I saw a lot of people's reactions were like, okay, well, this was a harmless asteroid at first, but did you just change the tra- trajectory <laughs> to where like now it's going to plummet into it? Well, well they I did, guess we'll see. They did, they did answer that question saying that the alteration of the orbiting asteroid does not cause any threat to Earth. And of course, it is orbiting a larger asteroid. So it's yeah. it's holding it. That That's why it kind of made the perfect test because uh, it was orbiting another asteroid. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Well, that's good. Then. But that would be bad if, like, we changed Listen, this. Listen, ho- hopefully there are a lot smarter people than you, I, you and I on this project. I think there, I think there are. <laughs> I think they probably thought about that. Yeah, but like, what a calamity if, like, we'd hit this orbiting asteroid and then it shot off and Man. it just smashed into Washington D.C. or something. Yeah. <laughs> now that the test has proved successful, 
if an asteroid one day does threaten Earth, scientists should be able to start developing a type of projectile defense system with heavy, dense objects that we can use to strategically hit the asteroids to deflect them off course and away from Earth. Cool. Isn't that crazy? It's cool. It's interesting. Yeah, we're, I like it. We're living in the future, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that we have this kind of proof of concept because it's it's something that we've all kind of worried about, right? Yeah, <laughs> and it also brings up other dumb questions that, again, uh, I originally went to college for aerospace engineering, but I don't know anything about how this would work. But can you nuke an asteroid? Should we start just collecting all of our nukes in the event that we need to nuke an asteroid? I don't know. How does that work? I don't know. All I know is as somebody who suffers from anxiety, this is one less thing I feel like I have yeah. to worry about. So. Yeah. One less <laughs> I existential celebrate. crisis. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, NASA expects to continue monitoring the asteroids uh, throughout the rest of this year and into early next year. And a European spacecraft is scheduled to arrive at Didymus when it passes by in 2027 to investigate the asteroid in more detail. Cool. Yeah. So there you go. Space, the final frontier. And we're right here in Texas doing research on how to protect the rest of the entire planet. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I like it. Thanks, guys. Welcome back to the show. We're going to do our Patreon thank yous. The after show. It's going to be beautiful. You can find us on Instagram at allcrimenocattle. On Twitter at ACNC Podcast and our Facebook discussion group called ACNC Posse Discussion Group. Yeah, and if you want to be a Patreon member, you can find us at patreon.com slash all crime no cattle. We have different tiers there, and if you don't like the commercials that you hear on the episode, you can get commercial and ad-free. Ooh, can I mention something about commercials real quick? I mean, nobody's gonna probably hear this part of the show, but I just want to be clear that it is election season right now. Oh, yeah. And y'all, if you hear a political ad on our show, it is not our intention. We are not trying to support anyone politically you that's know, correct. on this show. But that's because something has happened on the back end and somebody has inserted something that they should not have. It happens all of the time. So please keep that in mind, not just in our show, but when you listen to any podcast out there. It is hard to sometimes get people to stop putting political ads in your episodes. So just, you know, keep that in mind. Yeah. And we've also said before to our platform that we post our episodes on that we don't want to be involved in political ads, but they still sneak through and happen from time to time. Yeah. It's not something that Aaron and I have control over or that we decide or that we actually want to be posted on the show. That being said, let's give some shout outs to some of our awesome patrons who are supporting the show. Yay! And nobody's partisan in any of this support. This is all just support for All Crime No Cattle. So thank you so much. We've got Thera Morgan, Ashley Acosta, Victoria Beecham, D. Campbell, Kat Zoltner, Heather Dixon, Brianna Folio, Leanne Chance, J.M., and Amy Marischal. So these are all of our newest Patreon supporters that get their shout out. And that's something you can get to if you want to join up and become a patron. But we also have to shout out all of our amazing Texas Rangers who produce every ep episode of the show. And those include Amanda Mattaford, Don Maloney, E.G., Gail Parker, Jamie Gray, Jennifer Magnolia, Jessica Layfield, Leah Darty, Lynn Chance, Mickey Sweet, 
and Sarah Nicholson. Thank y'all so much for being Texas Rangers and supporting us. You know, just being generally awesome. Thank you're just you great being people. You. Yeah. Wow, you're so pretty and your hair is so shiny. Look yeah. at that face. Look at those cheekbones. Wow. The skincare that you must do. Oh my gosh, the eyes. Glitter. <laughs> Breathtaking. <laughs> <laughs> we just adore y'all. Thank you so much. And we we really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we're going to be back here pretty soon. Uh, I have to travel again for work, but I shouldn't be out that long. So next week we will have another episode ready for you. Part two and the conclusion of this series, which will happen to be the uh, the century mark for the show. A hundred episodes. That's right. Whew. Did you ever believe Wawa-wee-wa. when we started the show, we were going to do a hundred episodes about true crime in Texas? Nope. Me either. It's crazy. But maybe we'll do a little more talk about that next time. <laughs> yeah. I think Aaron's ready to go and get some food. And uh, I have a Dallas Stars game to watch. So I'm excited about that. But until next time, y'all stay safe. And always remember that crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Adios. Goodbye. Goodbye.